Chapter Ten of the Courage of Marge O'Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jairus Amar. The Courage of Marge O'Doone by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Ten. It was Barry who disturbed the silent tableau in the moonlight. David was staring at the missioner, held by the look of anguish that had settled so quickly and so strangely in his face, as if this bright night with its moon and stars had recalled to him a great sorrow, when they heard again the wolf-dogs howl out in the forest. It was quite near. David, with his eyes still on the other, saw Father Roland start, as if for an instant he had forgotten where he was. The missioner looked his way, and straightened his shoulders slowly, with a smile on his lips that was strained and wan as the smile of one worn out by an arduous toil. A splendid night, he repeated, and he raised a naked hand to his head, as if slowly brushing away something from before his eyes. It was a night like this, this, fifteen years ago. He stopped. In the moonlight he brought himself together with a jerk. He came and laid a hand on David's shoulder. That was Barry, he said. The dog has followed us. He is not very far in the forest, answered David. No, he smells us. He is waiting out there for you. There was a moment's silence between them as they listened. I will take him a fish, said David, then. I am sure he will come to me. Mukoki had hoisted the gunny sack full of fish well up against the roof of the cabin to keep it from chance marauders of the night, and Father Roland stood by while David lowered it and made a choice for Barry's supper. Then he re-entered the cabin. It was not Barry who drew David slowly into the forest. He wanted to be alone, away from Father Roland and the quiet, insistent scrutiny of the Cree. He wanted to think, ask himself questions, find answers for them if he could. His mind was just beginning to rouse itself to the significance of the events of the past day and night, and he was like one bewildered by a great mystery, and startled by visions of a possible tragedy. Fate had played with him strangely. It had linked him with happenings that were inexplicable and unusual, and he believed that they were not without their meaning for him. More or less of a fatalist, he was inspired by the sudden and disturbing thought that they had happened by inevitable necessity. Vividly, he saw again the dark haunting eyes of the woman in the coach, and heard again the few low, tense words with which she had revealed to him her quest of a man, a man by the name of Michael O'Doone. In her presence he had felt the nearness of tragedy. It had stirred him deeply, almost as deeply as the picture she had left in her seat the picture hidden now against his breast, like a thing which must not be betrayed, 
in which a strange and compelling instinct had made him associate in such a startling way with Tavish. He could not get Tavish out of his mind. Tavish, the haunted man. Tavish, the man who had fled from the Firepan Creek country at just about the time the girl in the picture had stood on the rock beside the pool. Tavish, terror-driven by a spirit of the dead, he did not attempt to reason the matter, or bear the folly of his alarm. He did not ask himself about the improbability of it all, but accepted without equivocation that strong impression as it had come to him. The conviction that the girl on the rock and the woman in the coach were in some way identified with the flight of Tavish, the man he had never seen, from that far valley in the northwest mountains. The questions he asked himself now were not to establish in his own mind either the truth or the absurdity of this conviction. He was determining with himself whether or not to confide in Father Roland. It was more than delicacy that made him hesitate. It was almost a personal shame. For a long time he had kept within his breast the secret of his own tragedy and dishonor. That it was his dishonor almost as much as the woman's, had been his own convictions, and how, at last, he had come to reveal that corroding sickness in his soul to a man who was almost a stranger was more than he could understand. But he had done just that. Father Roland had seen him stripped down to the naked truth in an hour of great need, and he had put out a hand in time to save him. He no longer doubted this last immeasurable fact. Twenty times since then, coldly and critically, he had thought of the woman who had been his wife, and slowly and terribly the enormity of her crime had swept further and further away from him the anguish of her loss. He was like a man risen from a sick bed, breathing freely again, tasting once more the flavor of the air that filled his lungs. All this he owed to Father Roland, and because of this, and his confession of only two nights ago, he felt a burning humiliation at the thoughts of telling the missioner that another face had come to fill his thoughts, and stir his anxieties. And what less could he tell, if he confided in him at all? He had gone a hundred yards or more into the forest, and in a little open space, lighted up like a tiny amphitheater in the glow of the moon. He stopped. Suddenly there came to him, throwing in its promise, a key to the situation. He would wait until they reached Tavish's. And then, in the presence of the missioner, he would suddenly show Tavish the picture. His heart throbbed uneasily as he anticipated the possible tragedy, the sudden betrayal of that moment. For Father Roland had said, like one who had glimpsed beyond the ken of human eyes, that Tavish was haunted by a vision of the dead. The dead! Could it be that she, the girl in the picture, he shook himself, set his lips tight to get the thought away from him, and the woman, the woman in the coach, the woman who had left in her seat this picture that was growing in his heart like a living thing, who was she? Was her quest one of vengeance, of retribution? 
was Tavish the man she was seeking? Up in that mountain valley, where the girl had stood on that rock? Had his name been Michael O'Doon? He was trembling when he went on, deeper into the forest, but of his determination there was no longer a doubt. He would say nothing to Father Roland until Tavish had seen the picture. Until now he had forgotten Barry. In the disquieting fear with which his thoughts were weighted, he had lost hold of the fact that in his hand he still carried the slightly curved and solidly frozen substance of a fish. The movement of a body near him, so unexpected and alarmingly close that a cry broke from his lips as he leaped to one side, roused him with a sudden mental shock. The beast, whatever it was, had passed within six feet of him, and now, twice that distance away, stood like a statue hewn out of stone leveling at him the fiery gleam of a solitary eye. Until he saw that one eye, and not two, David did not breathe. Then he gasped. The fish had fallen from his fingers. He stooped, picked it up, and called softly, Barry! The dog was waiting for his voice. His one eye shifted, slanting like a searchlight in the direction of the cabin, and turned swiftly back to David. He whined, and David spoke to him again, calling his name and holding out the fish. For several moments Barry did not move, but eyed him with the immobility of a half-blinded sphinx. Then, suddenly, he dropped on his belly and began crawling toward him. A splatter of moonlight fell upon them as David, crouching on his heels, gave Barry the fish, holding for a moment to the tail of it, while the hungry beast seized its head between his powerful jaws with a grinding crunch. The power of those jaws sent a little shiver through the man so close to them. They were terrible and splendid. A man's leg bone would have cracked between them like a pipe stem. And Barry, with that power of death in his jaws, had a second time crept to him on his belly, not fearingly in the shadow of a club, but like a thing tamed into slavery by a yearning adoration. It was a fact that seized upon David with a peculiar hold. It built up between them, between this down-and-out beast, and a man fighting to find himself, a comradeship which perhaps only the man and the beast could understand. Even as he devoured the fish, Barry kept his one eye on David, as though fearing he might lose him again if he allowed his gaze to falter for an instant. The truculency and the menace of that eye were gone. It was still bloodshot, still burned with a reddish fire, and a great pity swept through David as he thought of the blows the club must have given. He noticed, then, that Barry was making efforts to open the other eye. He saw the swollen lid flutter, the muscle twitch. Impulsively, he put out a hand. It fell unflinchingly on Barry's head, and in an instant the crunching of the dog's jaw had ceased, and he lay as if dead. David bent nearer. 
with the thumb and forefinger of his other hand he gently lifted the swollen lid. It caused a hurt. Barry whined softly. His great body trembled. His ivory fangs clicked like the teeth of a man with ague. To his wolfish soul, trembling in a body that had been condemned, beaten, clubbed, almost to the door of death, that hurt caused by David's fingers was a caress. He understood. He saw with a vision that was keener than sight. Faith was born in him, and burned like a conflagration. His head dropped to the snow. A great, gasping sigh ran through him, and his trembling ceased. His good eyes closed slowly as David gently and persistently massaged the muscles of the other with his thumb and forefinger. When at last he rose to his feet and returned to the cabin, Barry followed him to the edge of the clearing. Mukoki and the missioner had made their beds of balsam bows, two on the floor and one in the bunk, and the Cree had already rolled himself in his blanket when David entered the shack. Father Roland was wiping David's gun. We'll give you a little practice with this tomorrow, he promised. Do you suppose you can hit a moose? I have my doubts, mon père. Father Roland gave vent to his curious chuckle. I have promised to make a marksman of you in exchange for your your trouble in teaching me how to use the gloves, he said, polishing furiously. There was a twinkle in his eyes, as if a moment before he had been laughing to himself. The gloves were on the table. He had been examining them again and David found himself smiling at the childlike and eager interest he had taken in them. Suddenly, Father Roland rubbed still a little faster and said, If you can't hit a moose with a bullet, you surely can hit me with these gloves, eh? Yes, quite positively. But I shall be merciful if you, in turn, show some charity in teaching me how to shoot. The little missioner finished his polishing, set the rifle against the wall, and took the gloves in his hands. It is bright, almost like day, outside, he said a little yearningly. Are you tired? His hint was obvious, even to Makoki, who stared at him from under his blanket. And David was not tired. If his afternoon's work had fatigued him, his exhaustion was forgotten in the mental excitement that had followed the missioner's story of Tavish. He took a pair of the gloves in his hands, and nodded toward the door. You mean... Father Roland was on his feet. If you are not tired, it would give us a better stomach for sleep. Mukoki rolled from his blanket, a grin on his leathery face. He tied the wrist laces for them, and followed them out into the moonlit night, his face a copper-colored gargoyle illuminated by that fixed and joyous grin. David saw the look and wondered if it would change when he sent the little missioner bowling over in the snow, which he was quite sure to do, even if he was careful. He was a splendid boxer. 
in the days of his practice he had struck a terrific blow for his weight. At the athletic club he had been noted for a subtle strategy and a cleverness of defense that were his own. But he felt that he had grown rusty during the past year and a half. This thought was in his mind when he tapped the missioner on the end of his ruddy nose. They squared away in the moonlight, eight inches deep in the snow, and there was a joyous and eager light in Father Roland's eyes. The tap on his nose did not dim it. His teeth gleamed, even as David's gloves went plunk, plunk, against his nose again. Mukoki, still grinning like a carven thing, chuckled audibly. David pranced carelessly about the little missioner, poking him beautifully as he offered suggestions and criticism. You should protect your nose, mon père, plunk, and the pit of your stomach, plunk, and also your ears, plunk, plunk, but especially your nose, mon père, plunk, plunk, and sometimes the tip of your jaw, David, gurgled Father Roland, and for a few moments night closed in darkly about David. When he came fully into his senses again, he was sitting in the snow, with the little missioner bending over him anxiously, and Mukoki grinning down at him like a fiend. Dear heaven, forgive me, he heard Father Roland saying. I didn't mean it so hard, David. I didn't. But oh, man, it was such a chance, such a beautiful chance. And now I've spoiled it. I've spoiled our fun. Not unless you're tired, said David, getting up on his feet. You took me at a disadvantage, mon père. I thought you were green. And you were pulverizing my nose, apologized Father Roland. They went at it again, and this time David spared none of his caution and offered no advice, and the missioner no longer posed but became suddenly as elusive and as agile as a cat. David was amazed, but he wasted no breath to demand an explanation. Father Roland was parrying his straight blows like an adept. Three times in as many minutes he felt the sting of the missioner's glove in his face. In straightaway boxing, without the finer tricks and artifice of the game, he was soon convinced that the forest man was almost his match. Little by little, he began to exert the cleverness of his training. At the end of ten minutes, Father Roland was sitting dazedly in the snow, and the grin had gone from Mukoki's face. He had succumbed to a trick, a swift sidestep, a feint that had held in it an ambush, and the seat of the little missioner's faculties had rocked. But he was gurgling joyously when he rose to his feet and with one arm he hugged David as they returned to the cabin. "'Only one man has given me a jolt like that in many a year,' he boasted, a bit proudly. "'And that was Tavish. Tavish is good. He must have lived long among fighting men. Perhaps that is why I think so kindly of him. I love a fighting man if he fights honorably with either brain or brawn.' even more than I despise a coward. And yet this Tavish, you say, is pursued by a great fear. 
Can he be so much of a fighting man, in the way you mean, and still live in terror of... What? That single word broke from the missioner like the sharp crack of a whip. Of what is he afraid? he repeated. Can you tell me? Can you guess more than I have guessed? Is one a coward because he fears whispers that tremble in the air and sees a face in the darkness of night that is neither living nor dead? Is he? For a long time after he had gone to bed, David lay wide awake in the darkness, his mind working until it seemed to him that it was present in an iron chamber from which it was making futile efforts to escape. He could hear the steady breathing of Father Roland and Mukoki, who were asleep. His own eyes he could close only by forced efforts to bring upon himself the unconsciousness of rest. Tavish filled his mind, Tavish and the girl, and along with them the mysterious woman in the coach. He struggled with himself. He told himself how absurd it all was. How grotesquely his imagination was employing itself with him. How incredible it was that Tavish and the girl in the picture should be associated in a terrible way that had occurred to him. But he failed to convince himself. He fell asleep at last, and his slumber was filled with fleeting visions. When he awoke, the cabin was filled with the glow of the lantern. Father Roland and Mukoki were up, and the fire was crackling in the stove. The four days that followed broke the last link in the chain that held David Rain to the life from which he was fleeing when the forest missioner met him in the transcontinental. They were four wonderful days, in which they traveled steadily northward. Days of splendid sunshine, of intense cold, of brilliant stars, and a full moon at night. The first of these four days, David traveled fifteen miles on his snowshoes, and that night he slept in a balsam shelter close to the face of a great rock, which they heated with a fire of logs, so that all through the cold hours between darkness and gray dawn, the boulder was like a huge warming stone. The second night also marked the second great stride in his education in the life of the wild. Fang and hoof and padded claw were at large again in the forest after the blizzard, and Father Roland stopped at each broken path that crossed the trail, pointing out to him the stories that were written in the snow. He showed him where a fox had followed silently after a snowshoe rabbit, where a band of wolves had plowed through the snow in the trail of a deer that was doomed, and in a dense run of timber where both moose and carabao had sought refuge from the storm, he explained, carefully the slight difference between the hoofprints of the two. That night, Barry came into camp while they were sleeping, and in the morning they found where he had burrowed his round bed in the snow, not a dozen yards from their shelter. The third morning, David shot his moose, and that night he lured Barry almost to the side of their campfire, and tossed him chunks of raw flesh from where he sat smoking his pipe. He was changed. Three days on the trail and three nights in camp under the stars had begun their promised miracle working. His face was darkened by a stubble of beard. 
his ears and cheekbones were reddened by exposure to cold and wind. He felt that in those three days and nights his muscles had hardened, and his weakness had left him. It was in your mind, your sickness, Father Roland had told him, and he believed it now. He began to find a pleasure in that physical achievement which he had wondered at in Mukoki and the missioner. Each noon when they stopped to boil their tea and cook their dinner, and each night when they made camp, he had chopped down a tree. Tonight it had been an eight-inch jack pine, tough with pitch. The exertion had sent his blood pounding through him furiously. He was still breathing deeply as he sat near the fire, tossing bits of meat out to Barry. They were sixty miles from Thoreau's cabin, straight north, and for the twentieth time Father Roland was telling him how well he had done. And tomorrow, he added, we'll reach Tavish's. It had grown upon David that to see Tavish had become his one great mission in the north. What adventure lay beyond that meeting he did not surmise. All his thoughts had centered in the single desire to let Tavish look upon the picture. Tonight, after the missioner had joined Mukoki in the silk tent buried warmly under the mass of cut balsam, he sat a little longer beside the fire and asked himself questions which he had not thought of before. He would see Tavish. He would show him the picture. And what then? Would that be the end of it? He felt for a moment uncomfortable. Beyond Tavish there was a disturbing and unanswerable problem. The girl, if she still lived, was a thousand miles from where he was sitting at this moment. To reach her, with that distance of mountain and forest between them, it would be like traveling to the end of the world. It was the first time there had risen in his mind a definite thought of going to her, if she were alive. It startled him. It was like a shock. Go to her? Why? He drew forth the picture from his coat pocket and stared at the wonder-face of the girl in the light of the blazing logs. Why? His heart trembled. He lifted his eyes to the grayish film of smoke rising between him and the balsam-covered tent, and slowly he saw another face take form, framed in that wraith-like mist of smoke, the face of a golden goddess, laughing at him, taunting him. Laughing! Laughing! He forced his gaze from it with a shudder. Again he looked at the picture of the girl in his hand. She knows. She understands. She comforts me. He whispered the words. They were like a breath rising out of his soul. He replaced the picture in his pocket, and for a moment held it close against his breast. The next day, as the swift thickening gloom of northern night was descending about them again, the missioner halted his team on the crest of a boulder-strewn ridge, and pointing down to the murky plains at their feet, he said, with the satisfaction of one who has come to a journey's end. There is Tavish's. End of chapter 10